0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as uh, we're starting off a brand new broadcast week. Man, the weekend just flew. I don't know about you guys, but it just seemed like it just got started and now it's Monday, which is cool because that gives us an opportunity to learn more about the faith and be able to explain, defend the faith better. So uh, it's great to have all of you with us. Got a great show in store for us, by the way. We're going to have Bruce Sullivan join us. As you know, Bruce is a former Church of Christ minister, became Catholic, and now he's a Catholic deacon. And we're going to talk about a subject that confuses a lot of Catholics and has to do with biblical inerrancy biblical inerrancy. That's a fancy word. It basically means the belief that there are no errors in scripture. And it's based on the idea that God is the primary author of scripture and God can neither be deceived nor deceive. And since scripture is the word of God, then that means that the word of God cannot uh, deceive nor be deceived. Um, And it's, it's, Um, Boy, there's so much to talk about in regards to that. Faithful Catholics and good, solid uh, um, Protestants on this issue affirm it, uh, but there are a lot who look for the loopholes. And uh, by the way, biblical inerrancy doesn't mean that there's no difficulties in the Bible. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Biblical inerrancy just means that at the end of the day, when everything's said and done, there ultimately is solutions to the difficulties. Now we may not find it in right now. We might not find the solution next week or next year or maybe next decade or within our lifetimes. Even in fact, some things may, uh, some difficulties may remain till the end of time, but ultimately since it's mapped onto real life, those uh, difficulties are just difficulties only in appearance. And uh, so that's, basically what the, the territory that biblical inerrancy stakes out. So Bruce Sullivan's going to be coming on. We're going to talk a little bit about a misunderstood qualification in uh, de Verbum, the, uh, the uh, Vatican II teaching on the Bible. And so that's going to be very interesting, very important for us to know and uh, also to share with people. And that's all coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, folks, we're going to continue what we do every episode. We're going to look at informal fallacy. Today's finding the fallacy segment. We're going to look at the fallacy of division, the fallacy of division, which, by the way, is the counterpart to the fallacy of composition. Um, if uh, anybody cares to know, <laughs> and also we're going to meet an early church father Today's early church father is St. Clement of Alexandria, a very eccentric, I think, early church father, at least eccentric in the way he approaches the uh, uh, the faith and in his writings. So we'll learn a little bit, a little bit about uh, St. Clement of Alexandria, a little bit of his major writings, all that good stuff in a few seconds. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the show all of you listening on radio around the country, and of course, you live stream folks, how you doing? And all of you listening on podcasts around the world and in the future. It's great to have all of you in the dojo with me today. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of things I, I point out every episode is the idea of accessing the show. Uh, thanks be to God, Virgin Most Powerful Radio has a couple of resources that you can use Because if you're going to miss our segment with Bruce Sullivan today, for example, or maybe you're just disrupted or you didn't quite catch all the points, you don't have to worry because you could just go either to the phone app so you can live stream uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio and access shows through the phone app, or you could go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, the website, and just click on hands-on apologetics, and boom, you'll get all the shows that uh, Virtual Most Powerful produces. If you click on Hands-On Apologetics, you get all of our shows, and uh, eventually this show will be uploaded, so you can check it out. You can do notes. You can send it to friends. You can do all sorts of stuff with it. So definitely utilize that source, uh, or actually, I should say, those sources. Also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox if you'd like to get a hold of me. Love to hear from you. It is questions at hands-on apologetics dot com that is questions at hands on apologetics.com that's the way you get a hold of me and i do try to answer your emails Uh, not always quickly but i do try to get back to you Uh, there's other ways i don't know how but there's other ways i get emails from all sorts of places um to get a hold of me but don't trust those the questions at hands on apologetics.com is the way to do it okay um yeah, I, I don't think we have anything more to say. And so let's do our finding of the fallacy, shall we? Like I said, the finding of the fallacy for today is the fallacy of division. And the fallacy of division is, so let's read the um, definition. Fallacy of division is an informal fallacy that occurs when one reasons that something is uh, that is true for a whole must also be true for some or all of its parts. So it reasons from the whole to the parts and the fallacy of composition reasons from the parts to the whole. And I have to tell you, I always get those two mixed up composition and division. So division is from the whole to the parts or some of the parts and composition is from the parts to the whole. For example, The fallacy of division would, uh, here's a stock example I found on the internet, second grade class at Jefferson Elementary eats a lot of ice cream. So you have the whole Jefferson Elementary School has this particular quality. They love ice cream. Okay. Now, Carlos is a second grader at Jefferson Elementary. Therefore, Carlos eats a lot of ice cream. Okay. So does that follow? Well, no, it doesn't, because although Jefferson uh, Elementary eats a lot of ice cream, it doesn't necessarily mean that each and every student within the elementary eats a lot of ice cream. It could be just that as an aggregate, they love eating it, you know. But, you know, who knows? Carlos might be lactose intolerant or something like that, that he he just uh, doesn't like or cannot eat ice cream. And therefore, you can't make that jump from a group having a particular quality to the the idea that any particular individual within that group must also share that quality. And like I said, that is the fallacy of division, which is the flip side of the fallacy of composition. And you know what? Let's, well, real quickly, fallacy composition, stock example of that would be this airplane part is light, this other airplane part is light, therefore the airplane as a whole must be light. And uh, that does not follow, of course, because you, you can't lift up an entire airplane, although you might be able to lift up individual parts of the airplane. So that's the fallacy of composition and uh, the fallacy of division, of course, goes the other way from the whole to the parts. And that's our finding the fallacy for today, the fallacy of division. All right. Let's meet our early church father, St. Clement of Alexandria. St. Clement was born to pagan parents, probably at Athens, about the year 150 AD. So he's a very early church father. After beginning his Christian journey to uh, Italy, Syria, and Palestine, seeking Christian teachers for his own instruction, he ran across the celebrated Pantanius in Alexandria and was so attracted to the master that he settled there and became uh, his pupil an associate assistant and then eventually he succeeded him as the director of the school of catechumens attaining the latter position about 200 AD two or three years later he was forced by persecution under Septimius Severus to flee egypt he died in cappadocia between the year 211 and 216 AD without ever uh, being able to see egypt again uh Clement has three major works. There are smaller works, but the three major works are the Exhortation to the Greeks, which was, <coughs> excuse me, written before two hundred A.D. And this is uh, one of his three great works. Um, he, uh, at this point in time, he didn't have to rescue Christianity from the calumnies and slander of pagan writers. At this point, Christianity goes on the offensive. And he he's deeply concerned with the educative function of the logos or the word, the divine word, throughout the history of humanity. The second work is the Instructor of Children, also written before uh, 202 A.D., and it's a kind of a sequel to the first. He continues to develop the idea of the educative function of logos, who is presented as an instructor or tutor of converts in the context uh, the the conduct of their lives. The second and third book is, uh, excuse me, and uh, the third book, there we go, is called The Stromates or The Miscellanies. Uh, this was written after 202 AD. And the second, and, excuse me, and it's in this work that uh, basically lives up to the name The Miscellanies. In other words, it, it covers everything that wasn't covered in the two books. So it's kind of a catch-all book for a variety of ideas. And um, ultimately uh, we we get to overhear certain um, ideas and things that were going on around the time he wrote the book, making it a kind of third century Emily Post. And that is our early church father for today, St. Clement of Alexandria. Coming up next, we have our good friend, Bruce Sullivan, we talk about biblical inerrancy. Stay tuned. Now back to hands-on apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. Well, as you know, here on the show, and you know, and all Catholics should love sacred scripture and be able to defend sacred scripture. One of those aspects is biblical inerrancy. Unfortunately. Uh, There are some, even within the fold, who want to uh, maybe affirm biblical inerrancy, but limit it in different ways. So uh, does the inerrancy uh, extend to the whole scripture or only just certain parts? Well, to help answer that question, we have a good friend, uh, Deacon Bruce Sullivan with us. Uh, Bruce was a former Church of Christ minister, and in his book, Christness Fullness. Uh he outlines his journey of faith that took him from the roots of Southern Baptist to the pulpits of Church of Christ. And ultimately to experience Christness Fullness in the Catholic Church. He was received into the church in nineteen ninety five and has since become a Catholic deacon. And he's one of my favorite guests on the show. Uh Bruce Sullivan, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Excuse me.
0: Yeah, well, I I, I always uh, appreciate you on the show because unlike my other guests, uh, you have to actually travel by car in order to call in, because you're in Kentucky, and apparently uh, right. the coverage isn't that great in your area.
1: No, no, no. I have to go up to what we call Cellular Hill, <laughs> uh, so that I can actually. I'm parked under a shade tree, and I, right now, overlooking a. I, uh, a field in which a neighbor has just planted a crop of tobacco a couple of days ago. We've gotten some yeah. rain over the weekend. It was desperately needed, and so now it's a comfortable 80 degrees in the shade, partly cloudy and breezy. It's a wonderful day to be alive.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's a wonderful day to have you as a guest. And when you suggested this topic, uh, I thought it was awesome because we really haven't delved into that topic on the show and that is biblical inerrancy. So maybe we should probably start by. Uh, can you define for us what exactly is biblical inerrancy?
1: Well, basically, uh, <laughs> I don't have to define it. The church has. <laughs> so yeah, there like, go. Uh, you go. Know, the, the church actually has, you know, way back beginning with uh, in Vatican I, uh, the First Vatican Council, uh, we actually have that the, the books of the Old and New Testament whole and entire with all their parts, contain revelation without error, because having been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God for their author. That's the First Vatican Council, 1870, which was later on described by Pope Pius XII in 1943 in his encyclical Divino Flaughty Spiritu as being a solemn definition. And so that's a definition of biblical inerrancy, that this sacred scriptures, whole and entire with all their parts, uh are free from any error whatsoever, though we have to actually break that down as you know uh in terms of uh how does that work out in in everyday life
0: yeah right a yeah. passage yeah, I think people get confused because they think well then there can't be any difficulties in scripture, which of course isn 't true
1: oh wow the the, di- the scriptures uh if scriptures uh uh were not difficult we wouldn't have um uh, a multitude <laughs> of, uh, of, of denominations and so yes, there yeah. are difficulties uh but difficulties uh do not uh do not add up to error uh interp- you know difficulties um are something that come at us from our perspective, trying to understand what the sacred writer is affirming and due to because due, due to our limited uh, understanding and and maybe other things uh lack of uh data et cetera you may find a certain passage difficult to understand, but in no way does that mean that passage contains error.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, it's good to remind ourselves of that because I think a lot of people, uh, if they even know about the subject of biblical inerrancy, might think that it was first defined at Vatican II with Dave Verbum, but actually that goes back to the 1870, right, with the Vatican I.
1: Correct, and which and which only like all solemn doctrinal definitions, it was simply uh, you know uh, elucidating what the church has believed from the beginning. <laughs> and, she, right. and Vatican I did not pull inerrancy out of the hat. And it's something that when you said many Catholics are unaware of this teaching, I know myself. I, this this teaching became uh, got onto my radar screen. Uh, oh wow, about fifteen years ago, um, through my participation in a uh, a forum online, um, back when I was allowed to do that kind of thing. My wife has made me take a solemn vow never to do that again because <laughs> I always get up in the middle of the night to check what's going on. But basically, when I was in these Catholic forums, uh, it, it came up that there are people that were confused. I mean, and these people were good Catholics. They were solid Catholics. They were Orthodox Catholics. Uh, hmm. and yet they were under the impression that, uh, the Second Vatican Council, particularly Dei Verbum, paragraph 11, had limited inerrancy to only those things that pertain directly to faith and morals. Uh, and and some of it was coming from some biblical commentators. Uh, you know, Father Raymond Brown was a, uh, a Bible scholar, uh, actually on the Pont- Pontifical Biblical Commission, and some of his works kind of suggested that. I'm not trying to knock him, but you know, he put it in writing. I didn't. You know, right. he basically said that we've moved to an understanding where an inerrancy is limited to the Bible's teaching of that truth which God wanted to put in the sacred writing for the sake of our salvation. And that's from his book, The Virginal Conception and Bodily Resurrection of Jesus. And because he was a well-known scholar, many people, you know, you know took this. And so that's very, very common for, for many Catholics to think that the Second Vatican Council limited inerrancy to only, quote, faith and morals. But that's a misunderstanding of that document.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's difficult when uh, you know uh, you pick up a commentator that is, at least is popular. I mean, Raymond Brown was is, was a big name uh, within Catholic biblical studies, and he he says something that's not quite accurate. Uh, it's often hard to disabuse people of that notion because, after all, Raymond Brown said so.
1: And it doesn't help when the Pontifical Biblical Commission says something similar. In 1994, the Pontifical Biblical Commission issued a document called The Interpretation of the Bible in the Church. And it has a lot of great stuff in it. It really does. But it has this horrible statement in it. Quote, "...in what concerns the Gospels, fundamentalism does not take into account the development of the Gospel tradition." But naively confuses the final stage of this tradition, what the evangelists have written, with the initial, with the initial that is, the words and deeds of the historical Jesus. And so even the, the PBC caused some confusion by stating that there's a difference between what Jesus actually said and did and what the gospel actually records for us. And fortunately, in the introduction to that, that document, uh, the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger said quote the Pontifical biblical Commission in its new form after the second Vatican Council is not is not an organ of the teaching office, so you know it's just, you know, it's just a commission that makes recommendations et cetera I ought to pay attention to it and give it a good hearing et etc but it's its statements are not in any way any shape or any form authoritative
0: yeah yeah absolutely although i I think that probably um, again if you have somebody who you know, is very proficient in biblical studies. They probably would understand that. But I think the average Catholic in the pew, if they read that section, probably would, they wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about. Yeah. Historical Jesus. You know, you know what's the implications of it. But you're right, though. The implication is that uh, the the gospels uh, apparently are not not as accurate about what Jesus said and did. That there could be mistakes even.
1: I read I, I one time way back when the, the Passion of the Christ first came out, um, a bishop out west um, uh, was being interviewed on the on the topic because some people you know, said that the Passion of the Christ was anti-Semitic, et cetera, and all this kind of stuff. And so, in his effort to kind of, you know, I guess, back-paddle away from that or distance himself from the movie, he made a statement that the Gospels uh, were not, quote, historical accounts, but were theological reflections. And it's like, Well, again, if they're merely theological reflections that are reflecting on matters that they don't historically accurately portray, what's the value of the the reflection? I mean, you know, the, the, the value of the theological reflection is based upon the fact that they're historical accounts of what Jesus actually said and actually did, which is what the Church actually teaches about the Gospels.
0: Yeah yeah exactly, so what value is it if you if you don't uh if they don't match up with what actually took place, Of course, that opens up a whole uh can of worms also because whenever you you qualify something, then the debate comes you know who determines what qualifies and what doesn't right, so like in Vatican two, where uh there's this misunderstanding that it limited to things pertaining to salvation. Who determines whether a particular teaching or passage pertains to salvation or not? You know, it really is uh, asking for a lot of trouble and, and confusion.
1: And in fact, in fact, that is exactly what um, uh, you know what you just stated is exactly stated by uh, Pope Leo the thirteenth and Pope Day, Deus going back to eighteen ninety three, which is like uh, the magnum opus on how do you approach sacred scripture. And it's actually cited by Dave Verbum. He basically said that once you go down that path of, of uh you know limiting inerrancy, et cetera, et cetera, it will result in each person deciding for themselves you know, what they accept, what they don't accept in sacred scripture, which is gonna boil down to personal uh predilections, if you will. And so, uh yeah, which what, what you just said is exactly what was um uh foreseen by Pius, um, excuse me, Leo XIII.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, uh, at least that's what it seems to me, especially if you you run into a difficulty in Scripture. It's so easy just to say, well, that just doesn't pertain to salvation, so we don't have to worry about it. It's like, no, uh, you know, the whole of Scripture is inspired, therefore the whole Scripture is, is inerrant, there. And uh, so we got to work on that difficulty.
1: It is, and that's that's something that um, uh, all the popes have written about this, which you know, which include, you know, uh, Leo XIII, uh, Pius XII, um, and others have always said that um, the job of the biblical scholar is to basically roll up your sleeves, possibly get down on your knees, and this, and, and to prayerfully and assiduously study in order to arrive at something that harmonizes the sacred scriptures with itself and also with Catholic teaching. This is what Benedict XVI referred to, you know, the hermeneutic of continuity, which he was talking about between the Second Vatican Council and and previous teaching, but the whole idea of seeking that hermeneutic of continuity, which requires only that we do something that's very logical, and that is, Mm -hmm. give the inspired Word of God the benefit of the doubt.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. because uh, like you pointed out earlier, we're limited, right? Uh, there, are, there may be facts of history that are lost that would make something in Scripture appear to be erroneous, when actually it's not. And you know, who knows if we'll ever re- recover those facts of history.
1: Basically, St. Augustine, the doctor of grace, also my patron saint, when I was confirmed, um, mm-hmm. he basically said, if in these books I meet anything which seems contrary to the truth, I shall not hesitate to conclude either that the text is faulty or that the translator is not expressing meaning in the passage or that I myself do not understand.
0: Yep, Very good. Well, here's the music, Bruce. We'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan, and we're talking about biblical inerrancy. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan, and we're talking about biblical inerrancy. Bruce, right before the music started, you dropped a great quote from St. Augustine. Uh, w- maybe you could reread it again and maybe talk a little bit about those three points he makes.
1: Yes, because, and then let me back up also, because when I said that Leo the Thirteenth had uh, mentioned something about people selectively choosing from the Scriptures, actually it was St. Augustine who said that cited by Pope Pius, Pope St. Pius X, and Vesciendi Dominici Gregius. He said, quote, everyone, everybody will believe and refuse to believe what he likes or dislikes in them, that is the scriptures, once you actually admit the possibility of error. And now St. Augustine and St. Augustine himself, his posture was that, of course, of a saint. And he said, if in these books I meet anything which seems contrary to truth, I shall not hesitate to conclude either that the text is faulty, or that the translator has not expressed the meaning of the passage, or that I myself do not understand. And so there's three things there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the text could be faulty. In other words, all, these, all we don't have any autographs of the sacred scriptures. We don't have the original that St. John actually wrote on that papyrus. We have uh, uh, copies, and those copies are made by hand. And so therefore we have, it's, it's well known that there's copyist errors, you know, a little slash, a little jot, a little tittle, you know, missing here or there that can make a difference in how the text is translated. And that's not a problem because we have so many manuscripts that you're able generally to identify who made the mistake. But either one, the text is faulty, or two, the, the translator does not express the meaning of the passage. You know, since when does anyone translating between one language and another ever get it Perfectly with every nuance. And so we know that's difficult. And so we've got a translation that's not the best. But the best part that St. Augustine said was this I myself do not understand. There's yeah. the humility that has to guide every student of the Bible. And along those lines, way back in uh, American Magazine in 1993, uh, celebrating an- the 100th anniversary of uh, 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 Leo XIII, um, Provincius Deus, uh, a writer there said the following, with Divino Afflante Spiritu, it provided the stimulus for a development of, quote, genuine biblical scholarship within Catholicism. And so Divino Afflante Spiritu was written by uh, uh, Pius XII in 1943. So according to the writer of this magazine uh, article, Genuine Bible scholarship, biblical scholarship arrived on the scene in 1943 in the Catholic Church. Before that time, who knows, but genuine biblical scholarship. (laughs) And when you juxtapose that to a statement made by St. Pius X back in Pacendi, the Dominici Grieges, he said that regarding the modernists, one would imagine that before them, nobody even turned over the pages of Scripture. You've got to love <laughs> his holy sarcasm. And, and and you've got to read that whole paragraph. But when he, but, and he, he got it, he hit it in the, the nail on the head, you know, yeah. you know uh, almost a almost hundred years before the writer in America Magazine said, oh, with the Vino of Plante Spiritu, genuine biblical scholarship had finally arrived at the Catholic Church. He predicted that saying, Yeah, with them, you'd think that no one had ever turned over the pages of Sacred Scripture before. And, and, and you know, discounting, this, this you know, 2,000 years of fathers and saints who have poured over the sacred scriptures, uh, you know, bringing great erudition and, most of all, great humility, never even thinking of impugning the sacred scriptures with error, because it's impossible that God, who is the author of sacred scripture, should ever utter that which is untrue.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, boy, you really hit the nail on the head. Or actually, the Pope did, you know, way... uh, Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's... Uh, that, uh, you know, there's this kind of um, elitism that, uh, you know, uh, that we know everything and and the ancients are are ignorant. Well, that lack of humility, of course, they're not going to deal with uh, difficulties in Scripture, honestly, right? They're just going to take whatever and say, well, you know, the fault is with the inspired author, not with, uh, you know, not with me.
1: And I've thought about this a lot. You know, I don't, I don't want to impugn anyone's integrity. I don't want to presume to know what their, where their heart is. But I do know that without that posture of humility that, that basically has an operating assumption that if this is the inspired word of God, as the church teaches and always has taught and always will teach that it is, and that therefore since God is the author, it cannot contain error, well, then that's going to uh, predicate what I do you know, with anything that I find that is difficult. You know, I'm going to I'm going to assume that even if I can't come up with the answer, there is an answer, and and this is where sometimes some the, the education that some people have received has has undermined that confidence, unfortunately, and and it's one of these things that that modern. Historical biblical criticism has a lot to offer. You know, you're going to study, uh, you know, uh, literary genre. Uh, you're going to study to make sure the text itself it has integrity. You're going to study historical times and places and the original language, etc. That's what we used to call in the Church of Christ, Bible study. <laughs> <Just> Bible <laughs> study. And, and, and you're doing that to seek to understand the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Uh, and yet at the same time, what's happened in the modern church today sometimes, those things are being used to actually undermine that confidence unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and like you said it's a shame because there are good aspects to you know so-called higher criticism and things like that. But the the problem is the core, you know, it's uh this hermeneutic of suspicion that you just suspect everything and 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 so uh you know that undermines the the integrity of scripture. Because you're treating it as if it's just a human document that could make mistakes,
1: and that's exactly. I remember one time reading a, a statement where the, I heard that Rudolf Boltman, you know, the famous Protestant exegete, in uh, commenting on on Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus said, "I will build my church," um, mm-hmm. he, he he reportedly said wrote, "How could he, that is Jesus, have foreseen the establishment of the church, and and that therefore he concluded that this was." a latter insertion uh, by a zealous con- Christian community that succeeded Jesus. Well, how could he? I mean, he's the Word of God. He's God in the flesh. So anyway, what, what Boltman is, is re- revealing there is his own problem with the miraculous, with the supernatural, you know, because he doesn't believe that, that Jesus could have actually, you know, foreseen, established, and that's what some biblical scholars bring to the table. They bring to the table a very secularized, uh, anti-supernatural mindset, Uh, which is going to then cause them to say things like, well, this and this and this, these are obviously put in there by zealous Christians afterwards, because we know this can't be true. We know Jesus didn't actually walk on water, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it even goes all the way back to Porphyry, you know, uh, with the book of Daniel, where Daniel has these accurate predictions. And since Porphyry didn't believe that there is actual, you know, prophets, he said, well, this was just written, you know, during those contemporary events and then, they're foisted back in the history, right
1: yeah well do you believe in God or not <laughs> do you yeah. believe in the supernatural or not, and can God communicate to men uh as he has uh, as He has done so, and as the church teaches and if if that's my my bottom line operating assumption, then uh that's going to dictate how I approach anything uh that comprises uh, a a difficulty
0: yeah yep, yeah. yeah, absolutely um yeah, so. I mean, the funny thing is, is if you transfer this b- idea of biblical errancy to any other field, let's say science or astronomy, right? And in, in natural sciences, you have difficulties. You'll see phenomenon that doesn't make sense. Let's say a, a planet's orbit wobbles. You know, and that's a difficulty. Why is it wobbling? If the scientists just said, well, I guess that's just the way it is, you know, and moved on, we wouldn't have any scientific progress. It's really those difficulties that leads to discoveries.
1: And what you said, since you mentioned science, um, you know, that's one of the things that people, you know, uh, I'm going to call them the enemies who sacred scripture, whether they intend to be or not, uh, the ones who undermine biblical inerrancy will actually you know, bring up scientific examples. So in, in Malachi, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the Gentiles. You know, rising of the sun. Oh, here you go. We know that's false because, you know, that, 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 that's, that's suggesting a, a, a geocentric uh, solar system. We know that the Earth circles the sun. The sun doesn't actually rise. And yet, go tell me that there's not a, an astronomer out there who doesn't uh, speak uh, of the beautiful sunrise he saw the beautiful sunset right. he saw. Now, you know, and and, and Leto the thirteenth anticipated that as well, you know, talking about this whole thing that the sacred scriptures are written, you know, to speak to human beings using the figures of speech and things that, that in which the, that human beings are accustomed to based on what they see. And so when the sacred writer speaks of the rising of the sun, he should no more attribute that Being an error, as you would when someone else who's, like I say, a a certified astronomer, a PhD astronomer, who speaks of a sunrise and a sunset, because we we all know what he's saying. And so, you know, when when you read that in in Malachi, God's not trying to make a cosmological statement, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, since he's not trying to make a cosmological statement, that's not that's not how you interpret it. Then, you know, the truth that's being conveyed. Is without error god's name will be great among all the nations you know through you know from the sun rising and sun to its setting all over the globe and, and and so people treat the scriptures in an unfair manner that way
0: yeah yeah that's true because there are genuine difficulties in the text but there's a lot of difficulties that are caused by the interpreter right trying to make the text say something that it never intended to say
1: we run into that where the most, the most famous place in my opinion is the first chapter of genesis yeah, You know, uh, the first chapter, uh, you know, if I try to force that into being something that it wasn't intended to be, you know, namely a, uh, a scientific detailed explanation of how the world was made, I'm going to run into problems. Uh, and yet at the same time, what's the point of the first chapter? The point of the first chapter is to tell us how God made all things from nothing. Well, how can God communicate to you and I how to make all things from nothing, what kind of words can he use to say this is how you make all things from nothing? You can't do it. Uh, so, yeah. so there's, there's no there's no language God can use to adequately convince my P, you know persuade you know, inform my pea brain of how He called all things into existence from nothing. And so we have this beautiful description of of, of the seven day creation, you know, culminating in, 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 in something about the Sabbath rest, you know, uh, to 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 just describe to get to the point that. God made all things from nothing, and and, 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 that's, and that's the point. But if I try to make something more of that, I run into problems. And St. Augustine himself in the 4th century noted that without trying to argue against Darwinism or anything else.
0: Yep, absolutely. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan. We're talking about biblical inerrancy. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Back to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody. Hands On Apologetics. We are chatting with Bruce Sullivan, Deacon Bruce Sullivan, talking about biblical inerrancy. And uh, Bruce, you you left off uh, as usual with a brilliant point, (laughs) that namely, uh, God. How could God possibly describe creation ex nihilo to to you and me with uh, our limited human understanding? But you know it's even worse because uh, Genesis had to, God had to explain this to the, the original readers of Genesis thousands of years ago. Uh, so God kind of has to condescend to their level; otherwise, the scripture would be utterly meaningless until you get to where we are today.
1: Exactly. In fact, in fact, even today, with us four or five thousand years later, uh, at any level that He speaks to us. It's a condescension. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, right. Condescend. Condescend to us, you know, because you know, like I always tell my high schoolers in catechism class, you're a pea brain, I'm a pea brain, all of God's little children are pea brains, <laughs> in the sense that we, we're talking about compared to the Almighty. I mean, you know, we just—so if there are things you don't understand, accept that, get over it. <laughs> you know, an yeah. you know, eternity with God to, to, to have those questions answered. I do think that since, you know, day variable 11 is the, uh, is the locus in modern discussions of this that's caused problems, I'd like to take a look at that for a second. Okay. Um, Dave you know, Verbum is you know, the, the, the dogmatic constitution on the Word of God from the Second Vatican Council. And in paragraph 11, it says, "...since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, which to see confided to the sacred Scriptures." Now, the phrase that people latch onto is that phrase, for the sake of our salvation, and that gets kind of turned on its head into, into saying you know, that, that it's limited. You know, the, 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 the council fathers were limiting inerrancy to only things that actually directly impingements uh, 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 um, salvation. However, the relator of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the document, in other words, the committee that drew up the document, the, the, the man who was the relator that explained the meaning of the text, he said, by the term salvific, it is by no means suggested that sacred scripture is not in its integrity the inspired word of God. This expression does not imply any material limitation to the truth of scripture. Rather, it indicates scripture's formal specification. In other words, this statement by Dave Verbum 11, in Dave Irving 11, does not limit inerrancy to certain parts. Uh, rather, in... in, in, in Continuity with all previous teaching of the church, it affirms that sacred scripture, uh, in its entirety, is completely free from error when properly understood. And by saying, for the sake of our salvation, it's underscoring the purpose of sacred scripture. Anything and everything that God had consigned to writing is expressly for the purpose of our salvation. And what is it that He had conspired to writing uh, uh, consigned to writing? It basically says in the sentence prior to the one I read um, that basically the sacred writers consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. So in other words, if something is affirmed in sacred scripture, I know two things about it. I know, first of all, that it's true, and second of all, I know that it some way, somehow uh, pertains to the salvation of my soul. I may not actually understand how it pertains to the salvation of my soul, but it does, uh, because that is why it's written, for the sake of our salvation.
0: Yeah. Now, was that Colonel Bia? That, uh... I'm
1: not sure. Uh, the source I had didn't give the, the, the name. Okay. Uh, I'm looking for yeah, probably in Bia. the past. Mm-hmm. I, I do know, for example, that later on in the birth of the Messiah, Father Brown, Raymond Brown, had said, a faithful Catholic would have to ask would one rank the biological manner of Jesus' conception as a truth that God wanted in the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation? And it's basically suggesting that, that I have to actually, you know, if I don't see how it ties into the sake of my salvation, well then maybe it's not protected from from error. But that's backwards. If it's affirmed in sacred scripture, which the virgin birth is, then I know that it, it that it impacts. It's related to my soul salvation. And so we have to keep the cart and the horse in right order. If it's affirmed by Scripture, I know two things again. It's true, and it relates to our salvation in some way, shape, or form. That's the teaching of Vatican II.
0: Right. Yeah, that's very good. You're absolutely right. It inverses the order, right? Instead of God-inspiring and therefore it's true, it's like it's true, therefore we determine whether or not it's inspired or not, you know, or it's false or whatever. Completely opposite.
1: And so it's just something, again, this is one of those things that has to do with starting assumptions. And uh, uh, as you know, like on on your program with almost every kind of apologetic uh, direction we can go in, it's it's our starting assumptions. And if our starting assumption is that of what the church actually has affirmed during its entire 2,000 years' existence, that the sacred scriptures whole and entire with all their parts have God as their author and therefore are free from uh, error of any kind – then, if that is what's guiding me when I come across difficulties, you roll up the sleeves, you get down on your knees, and then and, and you try to to understand it uh, and reconcile it and harmonize it. And if at the end of the day, because of my little pea brain, I'm not able to actually come up with a satisfactory answer, then I join St. Augustine in saying, I myself do not understand. And yeah. there's going to be plenty of things we don't understand because our faith is shrouded in mystery. Uh, but that's the good news about you know, our, our future heaven, you know, our future in heaven with God. You know, uh, will it'll never get boring. We'll be plumbing yeah. the depths of the of, of the Holy Trinity for all eternity.
0: Yeah, that's true. And you never know. Uh, I know there was a, um, a particular difficulty about uh, the healing of the blind man at Jericho, and there were different accounts. Jesus heals him going into Jericho. Jesus heals him going out of Jericho, and then one account is Jesus heals him while going in and out of Jericho and uh, a lot of like uh biblical scholars in the 1800s lost their faith because of that difficulty then it turns out through archaeological uh finds that we find out there was actually two jerichos one next to the other and so it was just a difference of uh, perspective between it so it's like if we never made that discovery about jericho we would never solve that difficulty so it's you never know it's good, always good to confess humility And you'll eventually be vindicated, if not on this life, at least in the next life.
1: Yeah, the the biblical archaeology, Dead Sea Scrolls, all kinds of things continue to shed new light. And the light they shed affirms the Scriptures. And the reason this is important, which we're touching on right now, uh, St. Paul wraps up the book of the Romans in uh, chapter 15, verse 4, Well, there's 16 chapters, but even close to the end as he's wrapping it up, he says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The sacred scriptures are given to us to inspire within us hope, and attempts well-meaning, whatever, but wrong-headed nonetheless, that undermine the uh, integrity of sacred scripture, that undermine biblical inerrancy, actually end up destroying one's confidence in sacred scriptures, and thereby robbing us of hope. And so the whole point is, don't let anyone rob you of the hope that God wants you to have that comes to us through the sacred scriptures, whole and entire, with all their parts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, by someone who thinks that they have found a problem that no one can answer. There's an answer. Amen. And so Amen. don't let anybody undermine your hope.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh it- if you, if you go by how the church has historically uh, approached Scripture, uh, the, the Scripture's life-giving, right? It edifies us. But if you insert this doubt and in doubt inerrancy, then you're beholden to these experts to tell you what the Scripture actually does teach and what it doesn't. You know, it's like you kind of seed that uh, that intimacy to the, the knowing ones, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. Uh, one other uh, angle on this is pretty interesting um, was Pius XII made this statement about the sacred scriptures. Just as the word, excuse me, just as the substantial word of God became like to men in all things except sin, so the words of God expressed in human language are made like to human speech in every respect except error. Hmm. We made a parallelism between the sinless perfection of the word incarnate and the immunity from error of the word of God and sacred scripture. And that underscores the, the grave consequences of su- suggesting that the Bible contains error. Um, because basically, if we're suggesting sacred scriptures are limited in their freedom from error, we're kind of unwittingly making the corresponding suggestion that the sinless perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ was in some way limited as well. And so you know, all these things tie together, you know, uh, yeah. and, and so the faith stands or falls as a whole. And thankfully we've seen it for two thousand years. It stands. All these little faddish uh objections and stuff, they come and go. They come and go. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh but what stands firm forever is the word of God.
0: Amen. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, um we're coming up to the end of the show and as always I, I like to talk a little bit about your own ministry as a deacon. How's it how's it going, uh being a Catholic deacon?
1: I'm <laughs> um, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. I'm loving it. Whether or not my pastor and parish is loving it, you'll have to ask them. But I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I, I feel like I'm doing what God wants me to do, and that's a good place to be.
0: Yeah. So uh, with your uh, catechesis instruction, a lady, do you find that there's a, a lot of difficulty with biblical inerrancy?
1: I haven't found so much difficulty with biblical inerrancy, but generally with just sometimes just biblical literacy in general. Um, okay. uh, and so, you know, we started a parish Bible study. You know, we have it tonight, in fact, studying the Gospel of John. Uh, it, we're, we're in our fourth session. and are about to finish chapter one. I don't know why it's taking so long. It must be an instructor. But basically, <laughs> you know, we're, you know, biblical, uh, you know, Catholics hear more Bible than anyone, any other Christian every Sunday. But sometimes we're just not taking that home with us. And, uh, and, and, and there's a great interest. Catholics do want to know the Bible, and they do want to study it. and there's just wonderful resources out there um, to, to aid us in studying it. In fact, I highly suggest the Ignatius Study Bible with all that commentary, you know, with, by Scott Hahn and everything, you know, in the New Testament, mm. we're using that a lot in the class, and so um, it's, it's, and one of the greatest joys as a deacon is, is to be able to preach, you know, the Word of God, uh, from the Word of God at Mass, and so um, it's,
0: it's, it's a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it's uh, the bigger problem really is literacy rather than inerrancy. But uh, maybe on the forums, that's where <laughs> that's where people will yeah. encounter problems with inerrancy. Uh, all right, so uh, I hear the music coming up, Bruce. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much for having me. God bless.
0: Uh, thank you. That's the uh, Deacon Bruce Sullivan. Author of Christ in His Fullness, and uh, yeah, uh, it's a beautiful book, by the way. If you get a chance to pick up a copy, I uh, highly recommend it. Uh, coming up next, high impact Catholic talk coming at you at the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye, bye, everybody. Have a great day.